The content and discussion today will obviously and necessarily engage with the issue of child sexual abuse. I recognize that some listeners may be affected by this and some may find the content emotionally challenging. We have a range of information that I will share at the end and resources on the website that Saba will share with us where there's help and support. So my guest has been on many journeys to wellness. Her journey continues as she embarks on her journey with intention. Here she speaks today of coping mechanisms that helped her to get to where she is today with courage and faith in who she is. I call her a powerful warrior who has come through so much to arrive here today. So welcome Saba Kaiser. Hi Saba. Good morning Lynn. Hi. Now this is this is something that we're doing uh, through Skype. So I'm actually looking at you and um, you're speaking to me from your home in London. And um, the, the amazing technology, what would, what would we do without it in today's world? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, during the current uh, pandemic, uh, this technology has been a lifesaver for us to continue uh, engaging with people and continuing with our very important work, respectively. Yes, definitely. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's a blessing and a curse, as they say. But uh, yes. you're here today because we want to talk um, primarily about um, my podcast, the last one that I did, Victims of, to Survivor. When I thought about a woman that has survived um, child sexual abuse, you were the first person that came to mind, someone that I greatly admire and respect, and someone that I would like to interview. And to give our listeners an idea of who you are, um, to talk about your book that you've, that you've completed, um, that you're waiting to get published. Um, but more importantly, the coping mechanisms that you that you had to get through life, you know, were very important when you look back now. And I think you're you want to inspire, especially from your community, um, other people, other other women, to come through, and that there is a possibility of life at the other end. So I'll introduce you um, for, for people that are itching to know who is this amazing lady. So Saba Kaiser is the ethnic minority ambassador to the Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse, that's IICSA, a position that takes her around the country, that's the UK, to speak at events and conferences that she also co-organizes. As ambassador, her role is to ensure the voices of ethnic minority survivors are heard and that the inquiry reflects our country's diverse culture. Saba is of Pakistani origin, born and raised in Bristol, UK. From the age of seven, she was subject to repeated and systemic sexual abuse, let down by the police and social services, until she managed to get out at 15 years old, when she was made a ward of court. Throughout her traumatic formative years, Sabra consistently kept a journal, which she now uses to relive her experience and inform her writing as she retells her story. 
So this is Sava's first delve into composing a full-length book with the intention of publication. And um, her experiences as a survivor of child sexual abuse have been covered by a number of high-profile publications, including the BBC and The Guardian. She intends to publish her book in solidarity with other survivors in order to shatter the stigma around child sexual abuse and instigate change. So if you are interested in learning more about Saba and the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse, you can find more information on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. So there is no betrayal more profound than the sexual abuse of a child. It is an evil incomprehensible to its victims. Sabah's book, A Coconut Signature, is the true story of a Pakistani Punjabi British girl and the way Sabah navigates experiences of cruel sexual abuse at the hands of her family. From the age of seven, there was a shock to her system. She was a child in this in, in the house where she would play, sliding down beautiful banisters, the spine of her house. Then men started coming from a foreign land, her uncles. Her Asian background meant that hitting was the norm, but she was used to it. She identified as a child, the only reasoning she could that she was being hit. Throughout her childhood, she was trying to understand what was wrong with her. What was she doing wrong that meant she was being hit? She never did understand and the hitting just got worse. She had to somehow find a way to ensure her own survival, mental survival, so she didn't break and succumb to their abuse. She was fortunate to have in her first years in a beautiful house with a lovely garden to live in a lovely house with a lovely garden. She found solace in that house and it became her playground, her imaginary land where she could exist carefree in her mind. And it was coping mechanisms that she developed as a child that ensured her survival. The bath, age nine. This is the first time where she experienced a change in her understanding of what was happening. She was too young to understand what it was and didn't have the vocabulary to put it into words. But she started to believe that it was not something that she was doing wrong, rather that she was born that way. In her mind, she was able to detach from her mind her biggest and profound coping mechanism. It allowed her to leave her body and her circumstances in her mind when at this young age she was not yet emotionally nor physically able to separate from those who were abusing her. She did not work it out and the hitting only got worse. She was nine years old when she was raped for the first time, still a young child. She had to find ways to ensure her own mental survival or risk being broken. She found solace in her home in her imaginary lands and make-believe games. But the older she got, the harder it was to face away from the fact that she was being hurt. She was nine years old when she opened her eyes to see that she was sitting in a bath of her own blood. That day, she learnt how to separate her body and fly away with the birds. 
since at this young age she was not yet emotionally or physically able to separate from those who were abusing her. So the spotlight isn't on the abuse but on the innocence of a child and the way that she coped while awful things were happening. Called a coconut representing her brown shell, her heritage, the inner whiteness she received, nurture living in Britain and her mind's signature, her own nature. Listener can follow her through to her request to be free of the abuse she inherited and her search for sanctuary in life for peace of mind. So that's the the opening, Saba. And um, from there, what can we say? I mean, when I spoke to you recently and we talked about the script for this interview and what I was drawn to through reading what you're going to uh, be bringing to this podcast, what I was drawn to was the imaginary mind and the, the mind of the, the child. And it reminds me of myself when I was going through, not at the time, I, I can't put a finger on what kind of abuse it was, but I know I wanted to escape. And I remember that I, I found a box and I used this box and made a doll's house out of it. And I would sit there and put little things in which represented different parts of my life. So I understand when you talk about a coping mechanism, how a child can escape into the imaginary world and we can find things that can actually bring us that solace in that moment where we do separate from the body and we go into that that spiritual part of us that you know is safe yeah absolutely um i believe um that it was the coping mechanisms that allowed me throughout my childhood to um to retain as much as i possibly could uh, aspects of my childhood um I, I, I'm fortunate that uh, I, I did live in a beautiful home uh, and this home did allow my imagination to, to grow, to develop and, and to roam free um, within the confounds of my own home. Um, and yeah, and this is why when you did approach me for this podcast interview, I, I jumped at the opportunity because I would like to share aspects of those coping mechanisms with your listeners yes and that's where we're going to start now so i'm going to hand this over to you because you, there is four coping mechanisms that were developed over time and um, i want the listeners particularly to kind of listen and try to thread into the story into the words so i'm going to hand it over to you saba with the first coping mechanism thank you thank you lynn uh, so yeah, as I, I've already prepared what I'm going to read, um, and um, there's, as you say, there are four coping mechanisms. The first one was about my imagination and the the stories that I had read at school in in you know the school books that that we were provided from the library, um, and I would adapt those stories um, and um, and and if you like, jump into them, and they would become my own. Uh, and, and I would exist within those stories um, in my own little world, uh, separated from everybody else's, separated from the world that was hurting me, that I did not understand. 
So the first coping mechanism uh, entitled Stories. The year is 1982. I'm looking towards the large window in our front living room on, on the ground level. The window looks out to the moonlit road. I hadn't noticed the great big tree standing so close to the window in the daylight. But as I glance in that direction, I see the thick brown branches spreading out from the side of the huge trunk. As I move towards the window to get a closer look, I'm amazed to see small green objects glowing in the dark. Looking closer still, I realize they are insects, each with two large eyes and antenna that spring from their foreheads. There are four of them, but I focus in on the one directly in front of me. Its head is slick, elongated. It seems to possess a character that normal insects do not. Were these super insects that live only on this mysterious tree? The insect has a notable aura, a power. It stands defiantly on its branch in the nocturnal world it inhabits. Its wings tucked into the side of its bullet-shaped body. More amazed still, I see that the insect has hands and legs that it uses as and when it needs. I move closer to the window. I feel no fear. I'm protected behind a huge pane of glass reinforced with a solid wooden frame. The glass is clean and the insects appear magnified before me as if I'm looking through a lens. But I'm only seven and although I'm on the sofa, I'm too short and I still can't properly see. I stretch my neck and tilt my head so that I can watch as well as my little body will allow. And I see that the insect is holding something. It has a long, slim, black object that it carries over its shoulders, then brings it to its resting place on the branch. Upon closer inspection, I realize the object is a worm. She is still alive, but she is not wriggling. Why is the worm not wriggling? Why doesn't she try to break free? What is wrong with the worm? Wake up, worm, run, scream for help. The worm does not move. It is as if she is frozen. Just as the insect possesses supernatural features, so does the worm on this enchanted tree. She has big brown eyes brimming with water. Do worms have eyes? It looks as though she is trying to cry, but her tears cannot fall. Are her tears frozen as well? She looks at me. I do not know if she wants to wants me to rescue her. She does not say anything. Her body does not tell me anything. She is frozen. Using his front two legs, the insect ties a knot around the worm with unnatural mysterious leaves in case she tries to escape. He performs a detailed inspection, then stands upright on four legs, balancing himself. Once he knows he is stable, he uses his front two legs to spread the worm's body limps sorry, to spread the worm's limp body out. The magical leaves allow the insect to do whatever he wants while preventing the worm from escaping. He proceeds to lick up and down the body of the worm. I wonder what the function of this licking is. Is the insect getting ready to eat the worm? Or could it be that he is exploring the worm's body? checking for any damage along its length and breadth. Up and down, the insect licks the worm. At time, he pokes the worm just below her tummy. He's careful not to poke too hard. Then he flips the worm over, pokes at her bottom, and continues to check all the other areas of her body. I wake up. Was I having a dream? 
I'm lying on the sofa directly under the big window in the front room. I peer out over the top of the couch and out of the window. The tree with the huge branches, the insect and the worm that belong to him have all gone. It is time to go to school. It doesn't occur to me to wonder why I have woken up on the sofa in the living room and not in my bed. I have no clothes on again. Since my uncle came from Pakistan to live with us, there have been several occasions where I have woken up with no clothes on, not in my bed. My uncle is asleep on the sofa, far against the wall. I get up quietly so I do not wake him and wipe my eyes free of sleep. I search for my nightclothes, put them on and head towards the bathroom. Parts of my body feel sore, but I am not worried. It is normal for me now. My body always feels sore when I wake up in the mornings. Rather than dwell on it, I gather my things and I run out of my front door, down the hill and through the big doors of the place I have grown to love, my school. It was not a dream. One of my coping mechanisms as a child was to create stories taken from cartoons and books to try and rationalize and explain what was happening to me. I'll give you a, I'll read another example. And this is a, a further example of how my imagination um, really did, uh, really did help me. It really did give me um, a, a world that coexisted in this world of abuse. And it was, I am so grateful, uh, so, so extremely grateful for the coping mechanisms that I did have. And I do believe that it's played a huge part in the person that I am today. The washing machine. The washing machine is depressed, no longer able to wash my mother's clothes. It has been discarded into a glum corner of the garden with no purpose. Its useful life is over. But my sisters and I soon find a use for it. We gather round and say, want to play with us machine? To which it always answers, yes. Each day my sister Iman sneaks his spoon and a fork from the kitchen and tinkers behind the machine, pulling at its hoses. She pretends she is a mechanic and that she's very busy with her tools, trying to fix our shuttle. After a while of banging, huffing and puffing, she wipes her brow and announces, right, it's ready to go. The shuttle always has an extraordinary journey to make. Today, we are off to Billy Gruff's magical land. I had told the story of Billy Gruff to my sisters one night as we lay awake in our beds long after the lights went out. Fearful of the dark, we would take turns telling others, telling the others a story, a joke, or singing a song. We used to do this every night until we fell asleep. The night when it was, that night when it was my turn to talk, I decided to tell a story inspired by one I'd read in, in a book at school that day, a story about three billy goats. There was the little billy goat, Iman, the middle-sized billy goat, my middle sister, Shamina, and the big billy goat, me. I morphed the three of us into our boy goat forms. Since I knew girls were never allowed to go out, so we had to be boys if we wanted to get away. The story went like this. Once upon a time, there were three billy goats who lived in a large townhouse. Little billy goat was strong and could fix anything, always keeping a cool head. 
Middle Billy Goat was clever and kept the others in check, looking ahead and never steering away from the path. Big Billy Goat was brave and believed that there was nothing the three of them couldn't do so long as they stayed together. One day, Billy, Big Billy Goat decided that they must run away from the town and find a new house to live in. The three Billy Goats sat and wondered how they would do this and where they would run away to. How would they find a house that was just right for them to live in? Middle Billy Goat wrote a list of things they wanted in the new house. A bedroom with a play cupboard painted all the colours from the rainbow and full of toys. A kitchen with a magical fridge that had lots of scrumptious food and refilled every time you opened it. A bathroom with bubbles big enough to swim in and a garden that had blue trees and red flowers and yellow hedgehogs and pink hamsters. Meanwhile, little Billy Goat designed a shuttle that had a magical engine, an engine that could fly them there. The shuttle is designed to have three seats, one for little Billy Goat, one for middle Billy Goat and one for big Billy Goat. Little Billy Goat began to work out how to build a shuttle. Middle Billy Goat began to think about the way to get to our new house and Big Billy Goat thought we can do this if we work together. When it is Shamina's turn, she adds to my story, telling us about the magical land the three Billy Goats discover as they ride in the shuttle, built from the broken washing machine in the garden. She tells, tells us the land has a field that you can run in for miles, where the grass is so long that you can't see each other over the top. To stay close, we must shout very loud, I'm over here, where are you? She demonstrates for us. She tells us that there are colourful flowers so big that you could climb up the yellow and purple stems and slide down their fun, bumpy petals. You then fall into a bright pink puddle where the blue fishes that played with you live. We decide to reach the magical land. Iman will hide a spoon and a fork in her salwar trousers, which she'll, she'll need to turn the washing machine into a shuttle, since she is the best at being a mechanic. Shamina will do the directions since she's best at that, plus she's the one that actually knows where the magical land is. And I'll be the first to get in the shuttle and make sure there are no dangers because I'm the oldest. After me, Iman will go while Shamina presses the buttons in an ordered sequence to get us there. The plan is set. We can't wait for the morning. We will wake up, gobble down our breakfast and run down the corridor where our brother Jahangir Khan would unlock the garden door for us to play, as he always did. The next morning, after we're let out, I climb into the washing machine drum and Shamina closes the door. I can hear her concentration. It is critical that she presses the buttons in the right order or I might get lost and no one will ever find me. I arrive at last and climb up to the after Shamina sends Iman to the man order and quickly climbs into the machine. Before long, she too arrives in the magical land where Iman and I are waiting for her. The magical land is beautiful. In it, we find the big apple tree that sprouts from our neighbor's garden and overshadows our grass field. We climb the tree, eager to explore the land, eager for our adventure. I wonder if we might see the original Billy Gruff. From the tree, we jump into our grass field where we run around all day, on the lookout for flowers. 
we pretend to climb up them and fall into the pink puddles and then we pretend that the blue fish are chasing us. When dusk draws in, my brother Jangid Khan calls for us to come inside. We climb the red brick wall that divides the neighbor's garden from ours, up the big apple tree and down again onto the concrete landing, the concrete landing slip where our shuttle is waiting to take us home. Amazing. We're going to stop there and we're just going to have a very short discussion because what I've decided to do is to break this into episodes. So can you just give, before we finish this episode and we go on to the next one, and we'll, we'll talk more about this one um, in the next one, but can you give uh, information on the website and contact that people can get hold of, people can go to if they, at this point, they're interested in looking more into uh, your story and also the uh, Truth Project? Yes, absolutely. Um, so as you uh, kindly introduced me at the beginning of, of this podcast, I am the ethnic minority ambassador to the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. Um, if people, um, obviously the, the content of the discussion that we've just had, um, to some listeners uh, it could affect them um, and they may wish to seek emotional uh, help. Um, they could go to our uh, website, uh, ICSA, I-I-C-S-A dot org dot UK and search help. Um, that will signpost them to organizations that are offering uh, support uh, for victims and survivors uh, of child sexual abuse. And of course, we've got a large US audience, um, a worldwide audience. So. I would suggest that people find in their local area, um, there's, there's places that they can go for support that can help them. So thank you, Saba. We're going to stop there and we're going to come back with the next episode and we'll be looking at coping mechanisms number two. And this is something, um, it's, it's not as long as the first one, but it's still reading it this morning. Um, each one for me is quite amazing that you've got to this place where you are now and how you actually coped throughout life, you know, not being heard, not being believed, being let down, not being um, respected. And I think that's what we want to get across, you know, the, the respectfulness of children. Children are often told to, ch children often, it's, it's often said that children should be seen and not heard. And I think that is a very old, traditional cliche now where we're starting to learn that children have a right to be here. And I think your story, you know, is one that is so inspiring to, especially to women um, who are ready to take the next step. So we're going to stop there before coming back to the next episode. Thank you.